number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great day for ordinary people, good, hardworking, decent Americans to speak out. A number of remarkable statements, one of them in the context of a very painful, very brutal trial that uh, just reached its conclusion. The uh, trial of a former police officer named uh, Kim Potter. And uh, a police officer, by the way, with a blameless record who is going to jail. She spoke beautifully. The judge spoke beautifully. And uh, the mother of the, uh, the victim uh, spoke beautifully. We will get to all of that. There is also uh, another one of those outbreaks of common sense, which is extraordinarily necessary in this country and much too rare, but it's happening. It's happening in the context of school board meetings. And there is now a father from North Carolina, multiracial father with uh, kids of color, as they say, and uh, speaking out about the dangers of critical race theory and uh, transgenderism and more. He, um, he speaks about racism at the government and the media level. We will get to that and let you hear his speech which has gone viral. And uh, then there's here in Seattle, a uh, former homeless Seattleite, uh, somebody who was part of the uh, community experiencing homelessness, I think you're supposed to say, who is so much more sensible than any of the experts or the leaders or the people who are planning to run city spending for homeless services up well above a hundred and fifty million dollars a year uh, with uh, new spending and this is for private homeless programs paid for by local businesses we will get to that as well it's also the um, announcement was made yesterday just as expected that he uh, was taking a decision the governor of the state of Washington Jay Inslee to drop the outdoor mandate, but to keep the indoor mask mandate after, uh, which is going to be kept in King County, by the way, after the statewide order expires. And there's something to be said here about just how confusing and inept all of this handling appears to be. No matter how you feel about masking or vaccines or any of the other measures, it's extraordinarily important at this point that uh, people who are administering all of this get it together and get the message clear. Uh, what about the message that we are giving to Russia about impending war in Ukraine? Is it really necessary every single day? War's coming, war's coming, get ready for war. Here comes the war. We're gonna have a really terrible war. And then what happens if God willing, it is not as disastrous and brutal and bloody and horrible a conflict as people are experiencing We then say, well, that's okay. And we accommodate a new map of uh, Eastern Europe. 
Uh, we will be talking about that with Ilan Berman, and we'll also be talking about all of the legal cases swirling around the John Durham report. Uh, did uh, John Durham's special prosecutor really distance himself from some of the charges that he appeared, or at least reportedly had made, in his filing charges about the Clinton campaign? A lot of mainstream media are saying today a subsequent filing showed he didn't want to be associated with those charges. Well, we'll talk to Alan Dershowitz about it, and also speak to Alan Dershowitz about the very strong decision by a Supreme Court justice in New York State who uh, really let the Trumps have it. And this is not just President Trump, it's his uh, son Don Jr. and his daughter Ivanka as well. This has to do with answering questions about their private businesses. This is not about anything that he did as president or in the federal service. It's private business lawsuits about the way that he handled his businesses. And uh, Judge Ergeron says that, uh, that he's a citizen. He's a citizen. He's not an office holder. And if citizens are being uh, charged with civil violations, and it's a civil suit, it's not a, a criminal action, then uh, they have to at least agree to sit down for an interview with the Attorney General of New York State, who is no friend of President Trump's. And that Attorney General of New York State is also connected with what uh, may be a surprise candidate uh, who would do much better for uh, the left than uh, people like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. We'll tell you who that is and more coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, first, the uh, Kim Potter case in Minnesota. In Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, this is a 26-year veteran of the police department with a blameless, blameless record. And uh, she was convicted of manslaughter back in December for the fatal shooting which took place after Wright tried to flee a traffic stop. The victim, Dante Wright, he's 20 years old. Video from the scene showed Potter uh, shout that she was going for her taser, though she had mistakenly pulled her pistol. She fired a single shot before realizing her mistake. The uh, judge, uh, Judge Regina Chu, said, this is one of the saddest cases I've had on my 20 years of the bench. And she explained uh, why she was actually going to uh, make the sentence, which ends up being two years in prison, the sentence lighter than what is generally recommended. It is at the low end. Uh, let's go first to Judge Chu talking about this case. Uh, this is Judge Regina Sh uh, Chu in Minnesota, clip three. Officer Kimberly Potter was trying to do the right thing. Of all the jobs in public service, police officers have the most difficult one. They must make snap decisions under tense, evolving, and ever-changing, ever-changing circumstances. They risk their lives every single day in public service. 
Officer Potter made a mistake that ended tragically. She never intended to hurt anyone. Her conduct cries out for a sentence significantly below the guidelines. And she got that sentence. It's still, it's, it's fascinating because generally when you think about why we put people in prison, you put people in prison most of all to protect the public from a uh, vicious criminal coming out and doing something like that again. There's no chance that Kimberly Potter is going to hurt anybody else. I, I don't think she's going to continue working as a cop. Uh, this is the first time there's anything like this on her record. Uh, she's clearly, clearly apologetic. But still, a young man, 20 years old, has died. And leaving behind a baby and a grieving mother and so some kind of penalty is necessary. The other reasons you put people in prison are to uh, create an example. And this does that, that police officers, as difficult as their jobs may be, as wonderful as they may be, uh, you have to show people their consequences if you make that kind of terrible mistake. We'll be right back with what Kim Potter said at her sentencing and then what the mother of Dante Wright reacted on. Uh, we'll be uh, right back on the MedVet Show. Medved Show talking about the sentencing of uh, former police officer Kim Potter, who was uh, sentenced uh, yesterday, and or, or was it today? It um, it was this morning actually, and the uh, prosecutors had been seeking at least seven years in prison, and the judge made what seems to me to be the appropriate decision by sentencing uh, Kimberly Potter to uh, the low end, as she put it, the, the low end of the recommendations for the judge in sentencing for someone who's guilty of manslaughter as she, she was. And um, I had mentioned that there are three things, three reasons we tend to put people in prison. Number one is to protect the public from other crimes by that particular prisoner. You you do have risk of a prisoner harming prison guards or prison employees, but generally if you're under lock and key, you're not in the position to harm uh, civilians outside. And then the other example, the other reason, and there's a third reason as well, you need to punish people for committing crimes to set an example that there will be consequences that you don't just get away even if what you've done has been a mistake it's been unintentional that's the grounds of manslaughter it's unintentional and what's interesting is even the Bible makes uh, distinctions of that nature they have uh, the idea of there is a death penalty biblically for committing murder in front of witnesses if you've been warned before and there are all kinds of preconditions but biblically if it's an accidental uh, death 
and they give the example if somebody is chomping or using a, an implement and it actually hits somebody and kills him by accident, then there's a whole city of refuge situation, which, no, we are not going to duplicate in 21st century America. But uh, the third reason that we have a whole prison system and uh, we used to execute people is providing some kind of healing, satisfaction, um, completion uh, for the victims' families, particularly if it's a terrible murder situation, and this is not murder because it was not intentional, where it's a terrible death of somebody who's 20 years old who um, his parents had high hopes for him. And this is uh, what Kim Potter said in the courtroom during her sentence, after her sentencing, and uh, her, her statement to Dante Wright's family. It's very emotional. Uh, clip two. Earlier, when you said that I didn't look at you during the trial, I don't believe I had a right to. I didn't even have a right to be in the same room with you. I am so sorry that I hurt you so badly. My heart is broken and devastated for all of you. I pray for Dante and all of you many, many times a day. He is not more than one thought away from my heart, and I have no right for that, for him to be in my heart. I do pray that one day you can find forgiveness only because hatred is so destructive to all of us. And that I pray peace will always be with you and your family. And uh, actually, it's, it's almost impossible not to watch that and listen to it and not realize that the woman's sincere. She, she had thrown herself down on the ground when she delivered the one shot with, uh, uh, with her hand on her gun, thinking it was a taser, one single shot, and unfortunately it hit Dante right in the chest. And then she fell to the ground crying immediately afterward, and she did say, I'm going to prison, which of course is true. She understood. And uh, then there's Dante Wright's mother, who uh, didn't entirely accept the, uh, the, the plea for forgiveness from uh, former cop Kim Potter. Here's what she had to say. And, and by the way, she had talked about the importance of a white woman's tears. She said, white woman's tears trump justice. She's a white woman, too, by the way. Dante White Wright's mother. Uh, here's what she had to say. A police officer, a police who was supposed to serve and protect so much, took so much away from us. She took our baby boy with a single gunshot through his heart. She shattered mine. A police officer that took an oath to serve and protect for 26 years, but not on this day. On this day, she did not protect. She failed Dante, our family, and our community. Well, it, 
it's true. She did fail the family and the community. The um, uh, Wright was killed after Brooklyn Center officers pulled him over for having an expired license and for an air freshener that was hanging from his rearview mirror, illegal. Evidence at Potter's trial showed officers learned that he had an outstanding warrant for a weapons possession charge, and they tried to arrest him when he pulled away. A video showed Potter shouted several times that she was going to tase Wright, but she had her gun in her hand and fired one shot into his chest. Oh, my God, Potter said as another cop tried to console her. According to footage released by police, holy beep, I just shot him. And she collapsed to the ground and sobbed, I'm going to prison, as she is. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be speaking about the war fears that are pending in Ukraine. How are they playing at home? Is this making Putin more popular or less so? We'll talk about uh, that with Ilan Berman, who has just come back from relevant world travels. And what about the connection that um, is involved between Russia and the situation in Ukraine and Iran, where there's a report today that we are getting closer and closer, the Biden administration says, to restructuring that Iran deal that uh, President Trump tore up, and uh, what I believe was very much the right thing to do at the time. Uh, when we come back, we'll also be talking about Common Sense, a formerly homeless critic of current homeless policies has some very brief, very pointed common sense about what we're doing, and common sense from a uh, an upset parent at political correctness, wokeness in our schools. That and more coming up on the Medved Show. Medved Show. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show Ilan Berman, who is Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. He uh, just got back from the Middle East. He was in Bahrain. Uh, he was actually covering there the historic uh, visit by the Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, with uh, Israel's new Abraham Accords partner. He was also in the UAE, and he was in Israel. And uh, he's also a very close observer, and has been for a long time, of uh, the situation in Russia, and particularly regarding Ukraine. And over at Newsweek, uh, where I have a piece over at Newsweek today as well about why it is that preppies own the presidency, that's another story. Um, but uh, Ilan has a piece 
on the domestic support for Putin's war plans. First of all, Elon Berman, uh, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the USA. Uh, oh, everybody has, had been assuming that that uh, going to war was going to uh, boost Vladimir Putin's popularity. Uh, you're saying not so fast. Well, right, and and this is, I, I think, uh, an aspect of the story that that really isn't getting covered because there's a general sense when we look at Russia that you know Russia is what the Kremlin is doing is this sort of uh, moving like a consolidated entity, but. It's useful to remember that uh, China, uh, the People's Republic of China, is a totalitarian regime. Russia is not a totalitarian regime, it's an authoritarian regime, meaning that there are multiple stakeholders in the system, right? We still know who's in charge. Vladimir Putin is in charge. But the reason he stays in power is because he sits atop of this collection of interests, uh, economic and political interests, for this group of super empowered elites. And increasingly, what you're hearing from this group, from public intellectuals, from uh, military officers, is that maybe Ukraine isn't quite the slam dunk that Vladimir Putin is selling uh, internationally. Um, you've had sort of lots of statements uh, now by Russian military brass saying that, you know, as in terms of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, this may be uh, not the walk in the park that uh, Putin has advertised. This may actually be very difficult. It may geopolitically set Russia back instead of move it forward. And so what you're seeing is that, you know, there's really cracks in that domestic consensus about whether or not this is a good idea. And I, I think, you know, at least to a point, this is important because Putin requires this sort of agreement, this sort of uh, support uh, from these constituencies in order to stay in power. So the more turbulence you see for, uh, from those people at home, uh, the rockier his position becomes. Now, these people that you're talking about, that would include people in the military who were uh, taking a look at some of the upgrades in the Ukrainian armed forces and thinking uh, this, uh, as you've said, it's not a walk in the park, it won't be a picnic. Uh, could it also be the fears that uh, seem to me to be entirely justified that uh, Ukrainians would fight back with some kind of guerrilla warfare if there is some kind of Russian occupation? No, I, absolutely. Look, uh, I, you and I talked uh, last month about the fact that, you know, in the Russian geopolitical memory, Ukraine looms very large because a millennia ago, uh, a state called Kievan Rus was actually the biggest state in Europe. It's, it's the place from which the Russian Empire sprang. So in the Russian imagination, you can't really recreate greatness without subjugating Ukraine, because this is sort of where it all began. Um, but uh, increasingly, what you're seeing is, and this happened um, in 2014 uh, as a reaction to uh, Russia's aggression and Russia's occupation of Crimea, um, and has continued since, is that the two peoples, the Russians and the Ukrainians, that ha had previously been pretty much aligned uh, ideologically, really took divergent paths. Uh, Ukraine headed towards the West. Ukraine saw uh, this rise in nationalist sentiment because they saw Russia as the aggressor. And so a lot of this criticism, uh, particularly from the Russian military officers that you're hearing now, is that uh, this may be the final nail in the coffin, right? If Russia invades again, what you could actually see is this sort of this really fundamental rupture between Russia and Ukraine, and, and Russia would lose Ukraine forever. And that's not an insignificant fear 
for people who think about you know long-term strategic interests uh, as seen from Moscow. Is uh, does this hesitation or division that you're right? It gets almost no attention from the news. You basically see Russia as a monolith, completely united, moving inexorably into this invasion. Could this explain why it is that President Biden has gotten so tiresome? It's every day. It's war is coming. They could go to war any time. They're coming this way because that uh, uh, indicates there's nothing like an element of surprise here to anything the criminal would do. No, I think that's right. And there's also, I mean, there, there's a, a, a fair amount of savviness to it, right, in, in the sense that, you know, Russia thrives on the element of surprise. Russia has essentially, uh, right, it's useful to remember that Russia has created this problem from whole cloth. Uh, nobody asked Russia to forward deploy 100,000 troops on its common border with Ukraine, where they've now been for a quarter of a year. Russia has created this problem and now is trying to propose itself as a solution to this problem. But by talking about, about the imminence of a Russian invasion, uh, certainly it heightens uh, international worries, international tensions, but it also steals the element of surprise to a certain degree from the Russians, because the Russians can't make any surprise moves because all eyes are on them. So in this context, I think things are working. This is not sufficient as an American strategy, but it at least steals a little bit of the thunder from Vladimir Putin. What else is needed? as an optimal American strategy? Is there something that the administration is not doing right now that they should be? Well, yeah, and they've started to talk about it, but they haven't really done it yet, which is the sort of targeting precisely those elites that we were just talking about. Um, so one of the interesting uh, sort of uh, dynamics that you see in Russia is that uh, Vladimir Putin sits atop of the economic and political interests of all these uh, ultra-wealthy, super-rich, super-empowered individuals, but a lot of their assets aren't actually in Russia. Uh, they exist overseas, they exist in places like London and Cyprus and even in the United States. And uh, to the extent that the United States is able to target, identify those assets, target those assets, make those people persona non grata, um, and really lock them into Russia itself, that sends a powerful signal to them that, you know, it is up to them to make sure that Vladimir Putin behaves. And, and that's really something that could be a game changer. It's something that we've talked about, but we haven't really implemented in full force, at least not yet. And um, again, the, the basic estimate now is, by most military experts you talk to, is sure uh, there's no match to the Russian army, especially in the numbers they have at the border, from the Ukrainians. But there would be losses on both sides, and there could be uh, substantial Russian losses. No. Uh, well, no, I, I think that's right, and and the uh, one of the really interesting developments from the last time that Russia carried out aggression against Ukraine back in 2014 was that it gave rise to. Uh, a massive push on the part of Ukraine to modernize and strengthen its military, to enhance its capabilities, to the point now where the Ukrainian military, it's certainly not a peer-to-peer -peer competitor with the Russians, at least not yet, but it's head and shoulders above where it was before. It's far more capable of putting up a fight. And that's why the Russian military officers, when they're talking about it, they're 
describing it as, you know, if we're going to commit to this, we have to understand that the casualty count, that the sort of the, the prognosis is far more modest in terms of success than we can really imagine. And there's also reports today that the Biden administration is happily announcing that we're very close to making a deal with Iran to get back to that nuclear accord. Would that be a terrible thing for the United States and the world? I kind of think so. We'll get the view of Elon Berman. Uh, 1-800-955-1776, our phone number. We'll be right back with Elon Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's, it's dangerous for America. It's dangerous for the world. This is the Michael successful diplomacy to countries that are hostile to one another actually reaching some kind of agreement when is that not good news well I'll tell you it may not be good news when it involves Iran uh, there are reports in the uh, New York Times today quoting people from the Biden administration that we are getting ever so close to uh, getting back that Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but uh, there are lots of critics in the United States, mostly Republicans, but not entirely, who are warning that any new agreement would likely be torn up um, by the next administration. Ilan uh, Berman, you know a great deal about Iran. Uh, you're just back from another trip to the Middle East. Uh, where are you on this issue? Uh, should Is the Biden administration right to be pursuing so avidly another Iran deal? So I don't think so. Um, and I, I, I was a skeptic of the original 2015 deal. I think the uh, agreement that is likely to be reached now is going to be even weaker um, than what we saw in 2015 for a couple of reasons. Uh, because the Biden administration, let's remember, came into office talking about re-entering that 2015 deal as the prelude for a longer and stronger agreement that would really lock in uh, oversight of Iran's nuclear program and uh, sort of, you know, create a sort of a, a longer template. But that really hasn't happened. And so what we're looking at now, the most likely outcome of U.S. diplomacy with Iran is going to be uh, uh, re-entry, giving, giving Iran lavish uh, economic concessions, the sanctions relief, to, to make them re-enter a deal that's already mostly expired. Because let's remember, the 2015 deal wasn't a deal that uh, was in force, uh, supposed to be enforced in perpetuity. It only had a 10-year shelf life. And that 10-year shelf life is 50% expired already. And so what we're looking at now is giving Iran lavish concessions uh, in order to create even more temporary constraints. And that money, because money is fungible, is likely to rebound to the detriment of American allies in the region, countries like the UAE and Israel and Bahrain, that aren't separated from Iran by a large ocean, that are threatened by Iranian proxies. Uh, when I was in Abu Dhabi a couple of weeks ago, uh, the city was getting rocketed by rockets fired by Yemen's Houthi rebels, who are sponsored by Iran. And so all of this sort of activity is likely to increase 
in the aftermath of what the Biden administration is set to conclude. And uh, in terms of you, you just came from Bahrain and some of the photographs, some of the uh, video from Bahrain was just amazing. It actually showed a warm handshakes between members of the royal family in Bahrain, which has been there and on, on the throne for a very long time. But uh, some of this royalty shaking hands with a Jewish guy who happens to be the prime minister of Israel. Uh, that's kind of remarkable. You remember, I'm sure, Ilan, the, those past Olympics where there were Iranian uh, uh, judo competitors who uh, forfeited matches because they didn't want to touch anyone who was Jewish and Israeli. Remember that? Oh, but that's exactly right. <laughs> and, and so, and this is, by the way, precisely why what's happening in the region is so momentous. This is what I went out to see, really, because right now in the Middle East, right, a, uh, over a year after the conclusion of the Abraham Accords, you're seeing a tremendous amount of dynamism. There's a lot of interaction between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE and Morocco and quiet contacts between Israel and other countries. And that's a dominant trend line. But it's also a trend line, frankly, where the United States really isn't even in the picture, because the Biden administration uh, came into office essentially promising to do the photo negative of the foreign policy of the Trump administration. And as a result, it's been really late in the game in order uh, in terms of embracing this Israeli-Arab reconciliation and certainly hasn't really even capitalized on it, right? There's lots of business to be done. There's lots of connections to be made. And the consistent theme that I heard uh, traveling around the region was, where's America? And uh, your answer would be? Well, I hope we get here soon, because there's a, <laughs> there's a tremendous amount of things to do. No, and, and this is, I think, a crucial point, because right now in the Middle East, there are two trend lines. There's this trend line that I described, this trend line towards greater connectivity, trend line towards greater normalization and economic prosperity, and there's the rejectionist trend line. The trend line that says no to greater Israeli-Arab rep, uh, reconciliation. The trend line that talks about sort of historical grievances and, uh, you know, sort of uh, embraces uh, the type of extremist rhetoric that we saw in the past. And that second trend line is a trend line that's animated by countries like Iran, that's animated by groups like Hezbollah and Hamas. And that's the trend line, unfortunately, that you see the administration engaging with. Um, and rather than doubling down on prosperity, we are engaging with the most recidivist elements in the region. And frankly, I think that's a dead end. What, what about uh, the, the idea that uh, now there is an Islamist Arab party in the Israeli government, which is quite, uh, quite an eye-opener for people like Amnesty International, who called uh, Israel an apartheid state. But... Uh, with with voices being raised by Arab Israelis and by Palestinians on uh, the the West Bank and and elsewhere, that maybe something moving on that other trend line, the trend line of the Abraham Accords, uh, it might be time to engage some Palestinian leadership if there were any in that. As any any sense of openness at least for that kind of initiative. Well, that's precisely right, and, and frankly, that's the strategy that countries like the United Arab Emirates are banking on. 
there's there's this canard that says that oh well because you know you Bahrain and you uh, UAE you partnered with Israel that means you don't care about the Palestinians anymore and frankly that couldn't be further from the truth uh, the, the thing the theme that I heard consistently in those countries was the way we see towards greater prosperity for the Palestinians is not to embrace rejectionism but to show them through example that it's possible to achieve their goals by talking rather than fighting, by engaging with Israel, and by being a constructive stakeholder. And that's how we think we can achieve greater prosperity for the Palestinians. It's certainly a change from what we saw in the past, but it's a strategy worth pursuing. And these countries are pursuing it full bore, and frankly, they deserve our support. What about Russia's role? Russia has been drawing uh, consistently closer to Iran, hasn't it? Yeah, well, uh, certainly. And, and at the same time, uh, Russia is obviously a huge player because Russia is ensconced militarily in Syria to Israel's north. Um, and uh, in Israel, what you have is you have a fifth of the country, right? It's like uh, almost two million people. Uh, that are either uh, sort of Russian or of Russian extraction at this point. It doesn't mean that they're fans of the Kremlin, but the thing that you hear when you travel to Israel and you talk about Russia is this understanding that, you know, Vladimir Putin is certainly not a nice guy, but he is uh, sort of doing things that aren't inimical to Israel's interests. The, the issue about Russia and Iran is obviously a huge concern, but in the main, when they look at Russia's presence in the region, they tend not to see such a malign actor. And, you know, as a result, uh, you have to say that Vladimir Putin, since Russia re-entered the region in September of 2015, right, since it, it sort of uh, deployed a military contingent to Syria in 2015, um, it's really—its uh, influence has grown by leaps and bounds, right, because it's there, it's present, it's engaging, and, you know, th there's a recognition of that. Are they they in the, that deep split between Sunni and Shiite, between Saudi Arabia, leader of the Sunni bloc, and Iran, the leader of the Shiite bloc? Which side does Russia lean on? Well, it's interesting because uh, in terms of its own demographics, right, Russia's Muslims are the single largest, uh, fastest growing minority in Russia itself, right? There, there's something like 21 million out of 146 million Russians who are Muslim. Um, and the overwhelming majority of them are Sunni. And yet, Russia, at least so far, has been playing mostly on the Shiite side of the fence. It's been engaging with Syria, it's been engaging with Iran. And uh, so you would think that there would be a lot of distance between Russia and uh, you know, the countries of the Persian Gulf. But what you're actually seeing is that more and more, the countries of the Persian Gulf are drawing closer to Moscow. And it's not because they like Russia so much. It's because they're lacking alternatives. And so you're, as uh, the United States draws away from the region, as we pull back, as we retract, you're seeing more and more countries begin to think about Russia in the way they used to think about the Soviet Union as, you know, maybe not such a nice place, but it can be a stable superpower patron. Well, let us hope that the United States can help to fill a more constructive version of that role and remain, for the sake of the whole world, this greatest nation on God's green earth.